Daniel, chase Bloody Mary. I never touch the virgins, nah, they too scary. And then me, you guys, since the day of my birth. Now I'm a walking right billboard, obeying my thirst. My lips used to sip from sick mixed elixir. Now I big gulp from big bit to scripture. Living water all in my picture, get the picture. Blowing out my heart is the best kind of addiction. If I go days without seeking his face and start showing, a week outside his presence in the world starts knowing. Sometimes my earnest prayer is to erase my brain. Cause 20 years as a pagan, got my mind trained. Broke up with the world like I need my face, I gotta breathe. But then she looked me in my face like you ain't gotta leave. The landlord clued me in till you're cheating. I need more for a reason, so I got to get leaving. Your face I need to constantly see. I need more. Never feel I'm reaching my peak. I need more. My soul thirsts for you, oh Lord. I need more. I need more. I'm thirsting after God. Find peace in your mercy and grace. I need more. Find shelter in no other place. I need more. My soul thirsts for you, oh Lord. I need more. I need more, you can catch me at the broad Forget diamonds in his presence, I stay late With a shine like Moses when I'm seeking his face My gratitude for the water was Bottle it up and try to sell it like a telemarketer Until I die or they martyr us The water's aquaphobia, they're scared of the water cause yeah. So this is how I advertise You can drink from other sources but your soul's never satisfied 
search the scriptures, Lord, to study to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth, Lord, that we might not be ashamed, that we can glorify you as we continue to understand you through the plan of redemption that you have made known to us through the story of Scripture, Lord. I thank you, Lord, because as I continue to examine Scripture, I just see the mystery, Lord, how it was held as a mystery for so long, Lord, and then it was revealed in such a glorious revelation it was. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you through Jesus. And we offer up our praise to you. And in through Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, again, thank you for taking time to tune in. What we've been doing here on Bible Beacon Broadcast on Tuesday afternoon is going through sort of uh, preparatory studies of our readings that we're reading weekly here at the Blue Point Bible Church. Uh, many of you that have been tuning in understand what we're doing, but please uh, give me the grace as I just re-explain what we're doing. I will seek to do that with each and every show. So on February 15th, the day after Valentine's Day, we here at the Blue Point Bible Church began a series called Returning to Our First Love. And Really, this was something that I was kind of, I uh, felt compelled at the end of last year, studying through hell, studying through Satan, studying through eschatology. And I really felt compelled that a lot of times the topics that we talk about are extensions off of what the Bible's actually talking about. That if we would understand application before we would understand, I'm sorry, if we would understand context before we would understand application. I believe a lot of the conversations that come up in Christian controversy would not necessarily be necessary. And that's why I've called us to fall in love with the narrative, what we actually find in Scripture. If we stick to that, I believe that then we can begin to applicationally understand and possibly find the answers to some of the questions that uh, plague our, our uh, divided Christendom. I believe, namely, we need to fall in love with the story that is in Scripture. Get rid of your own ideas, stop approaching scripture, trying to answer your own questions, and fall in love with the story as it is told. And that's, again, that's what we're seeking to do here at Blue Point Bible Church. If you go to bluepointbiblechurch.org, you could go to um, our sermons and you can find a bunch of information about how to get involved with this sermon series, how you could follow weekly. Um, again, we started February 15th. Here, this week, starting uh, two days ago or three days ago, we're preparing for our Sunday sermon on March 15th, St. Patrick's Day for our Irish folk out there. And what our reading is for this week is Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, to Exodus chapter 2, verse 25. So we're pretty much finishing the book of Genesis. And I've been detailing the book of Genesis for about three weeks now. You can visit our Buzzsprout podcast or simply go to our website, click on Past Sermons, and click on the link. And it'll bring you to all of our sermons um, that I've – well a part of this sermon series and all the sermons that I've preached since I've been serving here at Blue Point Bible Church. You can also go down to the bottom of the page and find a bunch of sermons from our former pastor, Steve Schilling. So that's what we're doing. Again, that's a, the idea of this show is to kind of just pr prepare you for what I'll be talking about on Sunday, hopefully exhorting your studies, encouraging your studies, and uh, giving you a better foundation to understand the story of Scripture. So far, I have relayed Genesis. Actually, you know what? I'll tell you what, I'm going to uh, default to a man much smarter than me to give you some of the thoughts that we've been talking about in Genesis. And in, on today's show, we're going to have John Walton explain again. I've, I've used this link a couple times. I'm actually, today I'm going to allow N.T. Wright and John Walton to again give us a description of Genesis, and then we'll get right into our studies. Here's John Walton. <laughs> Thank you. 
we have to approach Genesis 1 for what it is. It's an ancient document. It's not a document that was written to us. Uh, we believe the Bible is written for us like it's for everyone of all times and places because it's God's Word. But it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written in our language. It wasn't written with our culture in mind or our culture in view. And therefore, if we want to get the best benefit from the communication, we need to try to enter their world, hear it as the audience would have heard it, uh, as the author would have meant it, and to, to read it in those terms. And um, no more important place to do that than in Genesis 1. To get the idea of what the six days, the seven days, actually, of course, is, is all about, uh, we have to try to understand the context of the ancient world. Uh, first of all, we would have to understand that this resting on the seventh day is a very important element of it. Uh, one thing that uh, we don't pick up at all when we read the text, but that any ancient reader, Israelite or otherwise, would have understood, is that if it talks about God resting, it's talking about a temple, because that's where God rests and where the gods rest, and that's why temples were built. And therefore, we automatically are thrown into a temple context when we understand the ancient world. The idea that they had in the ancient world was that the temple and the cosmos were kind of all blended into one. Uh, if we used a modern metaphor, it would almost be like the temple was the Oval Office. It's kind of where all the business is done, where the work is, is run. It's a hub of, of activity and of, of control. And so for them, that's what the temple represented, and the cosmos was run from the temple. And when deity took up his rest in the temple, it wasn't for leisure or relaxation. It was to settle down to the work now that everything's set up and ready to go. Uh, when our candidates run for office uh, and wanting to get into the White House, it's not so they can just flop down on the Lincoln bedroom. Uh, it's rather so they can get into the Oval Office and start running it. And if you ask, so what happened after the person was elected and inaugurated? Well, then they started running the, the country. And likewise, after the cosmos is organized and uh, God takes up his rest in this cosmic temple, well, now he starts running it. And here are the thoughts of N.T. Wright on Genesis. The question of when Genesis 1 was written is itself hugely controversial, and today I think you'd find a spread of scholars going way back to some who say Moses wrote it, so you know whenever that was, 1500 BC, um, based on earlier traditions perhaps, right through to some who would say it's perhaps actually written in the 3rd century BC or something like that. Um, I, I'm quite interested in the way, whenever it was written, the way people would have read it in the period immediately before the New Testament, so that the people who are Jesus' antecedents, as it were, how are they seeing a text like this? And it seems to me then quite clear, here's a story about these people who are put into a wonderful garden, given commands, given responsibilities, and then they blow it big time and they get kicked out. Now, any Jew reading that in the period from the Babylonian exile right through to Jesus is going to say, uh-uh, this is our story. And then they'll say, it looks like the backstory of our story. In other words, the connection between Adam and Eve in the garden and then being kicked out to Israel in the land and then being sent into exile. I think that's the thing that most would strike me. And then 
Um, what is really important about the beginning of that is that this was this was gift. This was not just they happened to stumble upon this lovely place. There is a good God who gave them this good place to be, and that somehow Israel has recapitulated. It's a big word which theologians use, which basically means they've they've done it over again in their own way. This is like the pattern repeating again. Um, Israel has done it again, and that's actually what the whole of the human race did. So the big story which is there is that humans are given their identity as wonderful creatures within a wonderful God-given world, and that nevertheless they blow it. That Israel was called to be the people through whom God would remake and redo that project, and they've blown it as well, which kind of then sets you up for the question, what happens next? And unless you've got that double picture in mind, then there's all sorts of stuff in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Paul, etc., which you just never understand. Um, and so often people just come with a little bit of it. And then if people then say, what really matters about Genesis is just precisely how many days it took and precisely how young the earth is, etc., say, it doesn't feel to me as though you're reading the text or you're reading something that you have turned the text into rather than the text itself. Amen. Did you catch the power of what N.T. Wright was saying? John Walton and N.T. Wright, to me, are the, the two foremost men that have an understanding of what is happening here with Genesis. I love what um, N.T. Wright just developed. That it's the back that Israel, that somebody living in Jesus' time would have looked at the book of Genesis and they would have said, This is the backstory to our story. And he brought up the term recapitulation, which is just a repeat. Um, I know Peter Enns and many other scholars have pointed out that what happens in the garden, that Genesis creation, that Genesis story, is a microcosm of the story of Israel. It was a before story, it was the backdrop. And Israel would later understand that was talking about them. And then today, many of us can look at that story and understand that when God brings us into his presence, that yes, we are sinners and we will, the, the depravity that has taken over will lead us to be sinners and will lead us to get kicked out if it was about our own merits. But thanks be to God that he has provided grace through Jesus Christ. And that's ultimately what makes me a Christian is that I'm looking at this literature, I'm understanding the story of Israel, I'm being exhorted by the story of Israel and what Jesus Christ came to do and what God did through his faithfulness in providing grace through Jesus Christ and how I have been brought into the hope of worshiping the true, the one true and divine God. That is the story and obviously it's all that was done through Israel and then all that was done through Christ that has given me the opportunity to be called into relationship with God, which I do believe starts with him, and on a more uh, natural perspective, allows me to look at these things, consider these things, pray about these things, and grow in my faith and my relationship with the one true God. So that's what we're doing. We're falling in love with God again by understanding his story, not understanding the preconceived concepts and notions and everything else that we decide to add to Scripture. I've been detailing exactly what you heard from um, Professor John Walton and N.T. Wright um, about Genesis. And what I've really been doing in this past Sunday, you can go to our podcast and listen to the sermon, I really sought to show how we're following a covenant line. Many expositors will start where we're starting today um, with Abraham and so forth um, in regards to Israel, the promise of gathering Abraham's descendants and 
making them a nation. That whoever would bless them would be blessed. Whoever would curse them would be cursed. And we know this is going to follow through to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to Jacob's sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then for the rest of our Old Testament, we follow that story. We follow the story of the, the tribes of Jacob. Um, we, obvi we obviously see a split after Solomon's death, and we end up seeing a divided kingdom. However, what we're reading about and what we're going to read about from Genesis chapters 10 to Exodus chapter 2 is this collection of Abraham's descendants, these people, and what God is going to begin to do through them. And again, that's what I sought to display this past Sunday was that we're following a covenant story that the story doesn't begin with Abraham. Israel's story did not begin with Abraham. Israel's story began with Adam. And I believe I, I've shown a very specific um, view of how it was Adam and Eve, and then it was Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Cain gets cast out into the land of nothing, be a wanderer on the face of the earth, no longer in that covered covenant relationship with God. And then Seth will be born. Seth will become that lineage. And then through Seth, we see that obviously, um, well, through Cain, we see that society got wicked. Lamech ends up killing, and you know it just gets really wicked. Seth his descendants begin to begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And now, through Seth, we end up seeing wickedness happen, and uh, the, the Israel or you know the, the Sethites did not respect their boundaries, and they end up um, intermingling with the sons of God and the daughters of men. And you know, and this Sunday I was very uh, humble to explain that maybe I'm wrong in, in certain areas with um, Genesis chapters six, because I know Jeff Vaughn he has brought up some great details about the sons of the Elohim and how that would refer to plurality of the sons of God. So. I have an essay, a must-look, um, on academia.edu, an essay on the sons of God in Genesis 6. I'm willing to be reproved. I'm willing to be exhorted and corrected by Scripture. So, again, understanding it either way, I think the story is very much the same. It's that the children of God did not respect their boundaries and began to intermingle with the surrounding nations, obviously falling back into that idolatry that God was calling them away from. And if it's kind of harsh when you know, you're declaring your rest and rule with a group of people and you're telling them to remain separate because you're giving them this good grace of bringing them into relationship with yourself, and then they begin to just forsake that and, and wander around and you know, have no regard for the grace that you have provided. And that's what we see happening in Genesis chapter 6. And then after that, we have you know, the story of Noah. And Noah is a righteous man that was saved from this... Um, just intermingling with the other nations. And, and Noah pr is preserved, and then obviously God is going to bring about a judgment, what we would know as the flood. And he brings about this judgment upon these people, and then um, out of that group of people, there's survivors, um, Noah's descendants, Noah's family, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then we begin to see a promise put upon Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and I believe that was at the end of chapter 9. And... Um, you know, you, you begin to see that Canaan is going to be a servant of his brethren, the descendants of Ham, and Japheth is going to dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan will be their servant. So, you know, and then it tells you that Noah died, he had sons, and, you know, and that's it. And then in chapter 10, our reading for today, we begin to read about Noah's sons. Now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were born, and those that were born to them after the flood. In Genesis chapter 2 through 5, we read the descendants of Shem. I mean, I'm sorry, of Japheth. These are the Gentiles. If you go down to verse 5, by these were the islands of the Gentiles divided into their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families, into their nations. And then we proceed on from 6 to 20, we read about the sons of Ham, Cush, Mizram, Foot, Canaan. And we, we go all the way down, you get Nimrod. Nimrod we're going to be dealing with here in a moment. And... uh 
you know, you got the Jebusites, the border they, they border the Canaanites. Remember the Canaanites to serve um Jepheth, the descendants of Jepheth. The border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar and to Gaza, and thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah and Sodom and Gomorrah, sorry about that, and Adma, Zeboim, and even unto Lasha. These are the sons of Ham after their families, their tongues, and their countries, and in their nations. And then we read about the descendants of Shem. Unto Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Jepheth, the elder, even unto him were children born. And you begin to read through his descendants here. Back to the descendants of Shem, because you're going to see something interesting happen here in Scripture that I mentioned this past Sunday. Then we get into chapter 11, as we're reading through our text here. And we just read the whole descendancy of um, Noah. And then it says in verse 1 in chapter 11, And the whole earth, now I want you to catch the power of this, the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east. Now who are we talking about here? Are we talking about the whole earth? You see, let's be consistent in our Bible reading. Matter of fact, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick up an NLT translation, which you know is always noted to be a translation that isn't exactly um, proper or... Uh, reliable to the original translation, but just for the sake of understanding how maybe another text would say this, here's Genesis chapter 11, 1 in the NLT. At one time, the whole world spoke a single language and used the same words. As the people migrated eastward, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia. The people who? <laughs> All the people of the earth? What are we talking about? If you understand the context of the Bible, what we've been talking about, again, Understanding the context allows for a local flood, allows for things to make sense in your Bible, allows for a Genesis creation not to be the entire humanity. It allows for you to understand the context of what's happening here. We're beginning to understand that small, that backdrop story of Israel. So here, who are the people that are in this land? These are all the descendants of Noah. And I remember a while back, I had heard a great teaching. It was a great teaching, but it was a false teaching um, on how Noah's descendants were those that filled the entire earth. Now, I, I demonstrated this past Sunday why I believe in a local flood. I, I give um, great praise to um, men, you know, men of God, uh, Jeff Vaughn and Tim Martin, for their studies in, in Beyond Creation Science and really seeking to demonstrate why a local flood is very consistent with the text. Obviously, even pointing at a local beginning, a local middle, and a local end. Um, Jesus even came to the lost sheep of Israel. The story is very covenantal. The story is very exclusive to Israel, and that exclusive story would be that which would bless all nations. Now, doesn't that sound like the promise to Abraham? So, again, I, I'm, I'm pointing out that you need to stick to the context of the story so far, and I think it would sound very ridiculous if the whole earth was moving to this land of Shinar. Again, there's a context here. It's all the descendants, this little world happening from Noah. They journeyed from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar, and there they dwelt. And they said to one another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make a name, lest we be scattered upon the face of the whole earth. And that's Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now, I want to default to a couple other resources here, as I promised I was going to be doing that. We're going to kind of go through some resources. Starting here in Genesis chapter 10, I'm going to read through a little bit of a story here from the Bible Reader's Companion by, what's his brother's name? Lawrence Richards. I've been sharing this on most of our broadcasts here. 
Here it says, the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 traces the relationship between the peoples known to ancient Israel and explains their link to the sons of Noah. The people are classified by language, land, and treaty links, as well as ethnically. But how did the race of man, springing afresh from a single family, become so divided? And you see, again, this is not the race of man, this is the race of Seth. We're not even reading about the Canaanites anymore. I'm, I'm sorry, the Canaanites, not the Canaanites. The Canaanites, the descendants of Cain, we're not, they're not even a part of our story anymore. We haven't even heard their lineage because they're not important. They're dead to God at this point. They've been cut off. They're wanderers on the face of the earth. All we're hearing about through Scripture so far at this point is that covenant race. With this explanation offered, here's the explanation. The story of the Tower of Babel explains God introduced the language that divided our race as an act of judgment when the early descendants of Noah arrogantly attempted to reach the heavens. Again, go... Use this story to try to understand Acts chapters 1 through 3. Now, in Acts chapters 1 through 3, we see the day of Pentecost. And remember, it said every, Jews from every nation under heaven, again, these divided nations, came together and heard one another, in their, heard the apostles in their own tongues. This is talking about the division of that covenant people. Why the descendants of Noah had scattered abroad, because they devised this Tower of Babel, and you're going you're gonna to see why. I'm going to demonstrate from Beyond Creation Science, again, Tim Martin and Jeff Bowen's view, why this covenantal people would have even begun to think that they could raise themselves up above God. So, again, Genesis chapter 10, we're reading about this, um, these, this table of nations is what it would be referred to. And here's some, just some insights and notes. Careful study has identified many of the peoples listed in Genesis 10. The modern name of selected peoples is identified below. And you have um, Gomer would be Sumerians, Madai would be the Medes, Javan, Greeks, Ashkenaz would be the Scythians, which is rather interesting. We could get into that another time. Elisha, the Cretes, Tarshish, Western Spain, Kittim, Cyprus, and those would be of Japheth. And then you could go on to Ham, and you know we would see the Shem, the Semites, would be Eber, Hebrews, Aram, the Syrians, in the third millennium, north and second, next to Canaan. And then Arafaxad, they would say, would be uh, maybe northern Iraq. And you see a lot of these ancient Near Eastern cultures, or ancient Eastern, you know, Middle Eastern cultures. And then in Genesis 12, it says, well, actually, no, wow, we're still on Babel. What happened here? So that's what they're saying about Babel in this little reader here. Now I want to give you some really good context on the Tower of Babel, coming right from uh, beyond creation science here. I'm going to read you some of the sections. I have a lot of notes in my book, and I just want to read through the whole thing here. I'm going to read you again the story of the Tower of Babel and share some uh, insights from beyond creation science. Now, the whole world, Aretz, had become one land and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used the brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Aretz again. But the Lord came down to the see the city and the tower that men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. From the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And many people will say that this is the story of why we have various languages as a human race, and I think that's erroneous. I think the problem would be that people are scattered all along. This is dealing with a covenantal judgment 
and here Jeff Vaughn and Tim Martin say the global view of Babel. They have a section here. It says, the same seemingly universal language of the flood and prophecy is also used in the biblical record of Babel. Christians generally view Babel in universal terms, involving a huge civilization. While there are volumes written to discuss the scope of the flood event, few spend much effort examining Babel and the relationship to the flood. Local flood advocates do not, do not apply their principles of interpreting the whole, the Hebrew word arets, which underlines the English whole world, earth, the face of the whole earth throughout the Babel story. The issue of Babel is severely neglected in popular old earth creationist books, which seems odd given how close to the account of Babel appears to the flood account in Genesis. To our knowledge, no one has developed a local view of Babel. Global Flood advocates spend more time writing about Babel because of how their understanding of Babel fits into their corresponding view of prophecy. Morris gives a representative example of this connection between Babel and a future global view of prophecy. And here he says, This monstrous system of evolutionary pantheism, accompanied by polytheism, astro astrology, spiritism, animism, and eventually humanism, atheism, and Satanism, thus originated at Babel and was spread throughout the world when God confused the languages and dispersed the unified population there around the earth. Just as pantheistic evolution served as the world's religion in the early days, so it will do again in the last days. The new age is really nothing but a revival in modern garb of the old age. That is, the first age after the flood, when King Nimrod led the world in a united rebellion against the Creator. The most effective thing the remnant of believers in God and His Word can do to offset this is to believe and teach a soundly biblical and scientific creationism. This must include the great truth that the Creator has now become the Lamb of God, our sin-forgiving Savior, and soon will return as eternal King. In that day, these shall not make war with the Lamb, shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. We have already dealt with, again, now going back to Jeff Vaughan and Tim Martin's views, we have already dealt with the many biblical problems with Whitcomb and Morris's global futurism. There are more problems with their view that happened at Babel. Those who advocate a global flood routinely overlook the serious implications for the story of Babel, implications based upon their own assumptions. The biblical relationship between the flood and Babel vindicate a local flood. The story of the flood and Babel taken together provide another compelling biblical proof that neither judgment involved universal planet-wide events. Again, we can note that, yes, the details in the count of Babel are sparse. One of the things that stands out is Genesis 11.3 it says that they, they said, uh, come let us make bricks and stone and, and fire that bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. Why would the builders choose these difficult and expensive options? Mesopotamian, Mesopotamia did not have an abundance of trees to fuel brick kilns. Why would they go through the extra step of firing brick? The builders used tar to waterproof their structure just as Noah used tar to waterproof the ark. The same tar is used to waterproof the ark basket used for Moses in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3. This suggests the city of Tower of Babel were constructed for the practical purposes of creating immunity from God's judgment. Again, these are people that went through the flood. They wanted protection from any future floods as they settled in the plain of Shinar. Today, hardly anyone thinks of Babel as a defiant response to the flood. Yet this, under, this understanding was common a century ago, before the dominance of dispensational premillennialism. One old American history book for children explains it this way. Somewhere in Babylonia, the people built a great tower called the Tower of Babel, which you have probably heard about. It was more like a mountain than a tower. Some say that the Tower of Babel and others like it were built so that the people might have a high place to which they could climb in case of another flood. This understanding of the Babel account finds ancient support in Josephus, who lived contemporary with early church. Now it was Nimrod who excited them 
to such an affront and contempt of God. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the whole world again. For that he would reach a, build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach. And that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod, and to esteem it the piece of cowardice to submit to God, and they built the tower. It was built of burnt brick, cemented together with mortar, made of bitumen, that it might not be liable to admit water. While Josephus' account gives slightly different details than Genesis, but it is perfectly compatible with the biblical account. Both Scripture and Josephus specify that the tower of burnt brick was built instead of stone and the tower was built of burnt brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. And then obviously you could ask, where did all these people come from? That's one of the major things that um, Jeff Vaughn and Tim Martin bring out in their book. So do you, are you catching it now? And one of the things I said this morning talking to somebody about the story of uh, Tower of Babel was that, that that makes a very good case for why we call people Nimrods. You know, again, you're a Nimrod if you think you could set yourself up high as God. Ah, works great, doesn't it? So... You see the context here. Yes, Nimrod is mad, and I find it very encouraging that Josephus would have recognized that this was a covenantal story. He knew that this was the story of his people. The story of Babel is better understood within a covenantal context. Rather than Noah's posterity, the people of God promoting the true worship of God in the culture around them as God had commanded them to fill the earth in Genesis 9-1, we now find them in this story of Babel engaging in pagan religion common to ancient Mesopotamia. It is is it possible here that we find an outline and similarity to the golden calf idolatry that Israel committed after their deliverance from Egypt? Again, remember, they were, Noah's descendants were delivered from that flood. The Tower of Babel resembles a ziggurat, which serves as a temple in ancient Babylonian and Mesopotamian religion. These structures were designed to be a stairway to heaven. The ultimate contrast to the story of Babel is the story of the New Jerusalem. Remember, man builds, tries to build up to God. God's story starts from God and comes down to man. Again, I, I remember somebody recently saying that I can't find in the Bible where Adam was taken by God and placed into the Garden of Eden. I can. Read Genesis 1 through 3 all again. God creates Adam outside of covenant with himself, outside the Garden, and then puts man, creates man outside there, and then fashions man and then places him into relationship with himself. If that's not an argument for biblical Calvinism, I don't know what could be. And this right here is again exhibiting that problem. Man, Eve, the same thing. The fruit will make you wise, will make you like God. What does Eve do? She goes and eats it. Nimrod wants to be like God, wants to set himself up like God, and builds this table to, to this tabernacle. I'm sorry, this tower to bring him up to God, and sure enough, he's, you're going to see it's going to face judgment. They're going to be scattered, divided, and what is going to unite them? Jesus, that Holy Spirit later in Acts at Pentecost. You see, now it's adding so much more fuel to the story of Jesus. The progeny of Noah had not remained true to the covenant faith of their forefather Noah. The story is about apostasy, and I believe that is exactly what is being said right there in Genesis. So, that's the problem. And again, I'm going to draw out a lot more of these details, um, but I do want to share some insights from the end of this chapter. Biblical Solution and Fulfillment of Babel. God judged a covenant world with the flood. Viewing the flood event as a covenant judgment solves all the problems outlined within this chapter, no matter how the genealogical material is read. If the flood account is limited to Noah's world and culture, there is no reason to be perplexed about the development of a post-flood world that the Bible assumes. Plenty of people lived beyond the range of the flood to explain Nimrod's many cities. 
A local flood also explains why Abraham's world looks the way it does shortly after the flood. It also has no problem with the Septuagint anomaly. Again, there is a very interesting uh, Septuagint issue with um, the people and the life of Methuselah. And, uh, and this is exhibited in Beyond Creation Science. Um, I'll, just, I'll just read one part from it. If the flood destroyed absolutely all human life on planet Earth except the eight people of Noah's family, then how is it possible that there could be another huge civilization on Earth within three generations of the flood? The common explanation of Babel as a colossal event involves a massive civilization after the flood, and it does not fit with a global flood view. There were not enough people on Earth. I'm trying to... Uh, yeah, again, th th that's the problem. It just doesn't it doesn't work out. Plenty of people lived beyond the the range of the flood to explain Nimrod's many cities. A local flood view explains why Abraham's world did looks the way it does. The same principles of covenant judgment we demonstrated at the flood apply equally to the account of Babel. Babel involves a people who lived outside the immediate locale where the flood took place, yet who hardened themselves against God's righteous judgment at the instigation of Nimrod. Some of Noah's progeny were also involved in construction of Babel. Just as the flood took place in a covenant context, the account of Babel speaks of similar regional events in biblical Mesopotamia that do not apply to the entire globe or other continents. People who lived in other parts of the planet Earth are simply beyond the purview of biblical account of Babel. And then you're going to see, as we, we continue, you're going to see the parallel between Exodus 1 and the story of Babel. Again, I'll, I'll read directly from Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. They built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made them their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all matter of the service of the field. Note the similarities between the story of Babel. The new Pharaoh had forgotten Joseph, and by implication the one true God, just as Nimrod forsook the faith of his forefather Noah. Pharaoh says, come, let us, just as the people of Babel initiate their project by saying, come, let us. Pharaoh engages the task of building supply cities to protect Egypt against any future famine, just as the design of Babel was to protect against any future flood. Pharaoh's ostentatious building project involved making brick, as did numerous attempts at Babel. The Hebrews were forced to build monuments to the name of the glory of Pharaoh, Egypt, rather than serve and worship Jehovah. The implications of Exodus 1 for the Hebrews, who knew their history, and what happened at Babel is plain. As God came down and judged Babel, causing their plan to fall, so God would come down and judge Egypt, bringing an end to Pharaoh's plan against the Hebrews. The rest of the book of Exodus tells the story of how this came to pass. In fact, Exodus 14, 24-25 says plainly that God came in judgment on the Egyptian army from the cloud. God cursed Babel and confused the language of the people, scattering them over the face of the earth. Again, I noted how at Pentecost this curse will be reversed. So that's what we're seeing directly here in our text. So let's continue here into... Uh, we just read through Genesis chapter 11, and here I just want to continue. At So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore it is the, the name is called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of the earth, and from thence the Lord scattered them abroad upon the face of the earth. These are the generations of Shem. Now remember, we read the generations of Shem. 
a little while ago. But here it's going to be continued again. I believe that this could very well be the, the um, beginning of another ancient tablet that could have been comprom- um, com- used in the composing of Genesis. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begat Arafaxad two years after the flood. So, here we have uh, Shem continuing his uh, his lineage. Shem lived and he began Arafaxad 500 years and begat sons and daughters. Arafaxad lived five and 30 years and begat Salah. And Arafaxad lived and after he begat Salah 430 years and begat sons and daughters. And Salah lived 30 years and begat Eber. And Salah lived after he begot Eber 430 years and begot sons and daughters. If you were to go back to the lineage of Seth and you read about how it accounts that... I mentioned this past Sunday that you read that covenant phrase, and he had sons and daughters, and he had sons and daughters. In your Bible, you want to note that right now, because you're going to see something amazing be revealed through the story of Scripture, and what indeed is happening in this covenant story. So again, I noted this past Sunday that having sons and daughters was a blessing upon the covenant people. What it's demonstrating when you're reading through a a listing of the covenant line is it's demonstrating that these people were blessed, that this was a covenant lineage. Again, you don't read that about Cain. You don't read that about Ham. You don't read that about Jephthah. We're only reading that here about the descendants of Shem. Sergus lived 30 years, begot Nahor. Sergur lived after he begot Nahor 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Verse 23, Nahor lived 920 years, begot Terah. Nahor lived after he begot Terah and 190 years and begot sons and daughters. And then we get into, Terah lived 70 years and begot Nabram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. You see, now the text all of a sudden has stopped. Now we're not reading about the descendants of Shem. Now we're reading about the descendants of Terah. It's not giving us a full account of all these different lineages. Again, this is not a book telling us about the beginning of the planet Earth and about all of the lineages. It's bringing us through a covenantal line. Now notice here what it says, starting at verse 26. Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. These are the generations of Terah. Terah began, begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in the Ur of Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took, them, took their wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of but Sarah was barren, and she had no child. You catch it? I've been telling you the entire covenant lineage was being blessed, blessed, blessed. Now all of a sudden we're at Sarah and Abraham, and or Abram, and there's no blessing. She's barren. There was no child. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, and his son's son, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son's Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of Chaldees to the land of the Canaan, and there they came into Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now we get into some promises here. You ready? Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house unto a land I will show thee. And I will make thee a great nation. I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless you, and curse them that curse you. And in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, (laughs) this is great. So now you have, the story has been a covenant lineage up to Abram. Now, one thing I love about the Lord's wisdom revealed throughout Scripture in many places is that when there's wickedness happening, the Lord sends the people, his people, his covenant people, amongst from, uh, you know, removes them from the midst of that uh, area that's going to be judged or that has a lot of calamity. For example, 
I believe that Adam being placed into the Garden of Eden was Adam being removed from the area he was originally living. He was called by the Lord. He was fashioned in the Lord's image and was called by the Lord to be placed into God's presence in the Garden. We have uh, Elijah, you know, um, or actually, I'm sorry, we'll go back to Enoch. Enoch walked with God and he was taken by God. Why? Because of the, the um, evil that was being done in his day, that it looked like the days of Noah. So, Lot was rescued and taken away from those people. Elijah, the same thing. There was a famine in the land. The people were being judged by God. Elijah's fed by the ravens. Elijah's taken from God up in chariots. Um, trying to, many times we see the story of Israel being removed, being saved from captivity. Uh, we see in the New Testament, we have the, the Christians. Um, we know that Je Josephus, Jewish historian, remarks that no Christians died in Jerusalem during the war of the, the Romans and the Jews. Why? Because God pulled his people out from that mist. That's the story of Scripture. That Again, it, all of these details are showing us God's greatness. So what's happening here is now, clearly in the year of Chaldees, there was um, paganism, there was polytheism, worshipping other gods. So God is taking what is barren, taking what is, there's death there. There's no life. She's not giving life to the covenant line. Again, understanding the way the ancients looked at birth and death, um, I'm sorry, birth and, and lack of birth was that you were cursed. And uh, what's happening here is her line looks cursed. And God's promising a man who has no lineage that I will bless your descendants. Imagine how laughable that seems. God is about to take something from darkness, from death, confusion, and turn it into life. That's what he's doing here. Verse 4 here in chapter 11. I'm sorry, we're in chapter 12. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed out of Haran, Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother and son, and all their substance they had gathered, and their souls, and they had gotten into Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land and the place, the place of Sikkim, unto the plain of Merah, and Canaanite, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram, and said, Unto thy seed I will give this land, and they builded there he built an altar unto the Lord who appeared to him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain of the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, and high on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into, to, into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he had come near in, to enter into Egypt, that he had said to Sarai, his wife, Behold now... I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save you alive. Say, I pray thee, that thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake. My soul shall live because of you. So now Abram is about to take his wife and allow his wife to get mixed into this idolatry again. But they're falling into the same problem. And, and I, I would urge you to read through the, the rest of that story, you know, you end up finding um, Abram's blessed by uh, the Pharaoh for giving up his wife. And then, clearly, uh, they end up finding out that uh, this is not Abram's sister. This is indeed his wife. Now there's plagues happening because God does not want this. The Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So, Pharaoh then commends Abram to leave. Now, get this guy out of here. And Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south. Abram was very rich in cattle, and silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the place, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and High, unto the place of the altar which he had made. And there first Abram, he had made there at first, and there Abram called up 
upon the name of the Lord. Another covenant phrase that I mentioned going all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 with the Sethites. Again, that was the solution. They called upon the name of the Lord. That's what the revel- throughout Genesis, what we're reading about is a God is God calling a people to Himself that will truly call upon the name of the Lord. The people that were calling calling out to the birds of the air were not calling upon the name of the Lord, and that's why there was darkness and obscurity and confusion that plagued their land, much like ours today. You know, I don't need to inject us into this story and say it's all about humanity. Instead, we can understand what God was doing through his covenant people and what God is doing through his covenant people today and allow that application to call us to understand our jealous God, to understand that we do not want to fall into idolatry, that we desire to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And if returning to our first love is not the way to do that, if falling in love with the story of Scripture as it is relayed through Scripture, then I quite frankly don't know any other way. I don't believe that God then has given us the revelation of how to understand him. Because I promise you it is not enough subjective, let me find God on my own. That's not the story here. We're following a specific covenant story. And you're going to read, you're going to continue to read through this full story. And I'm just going to share with you as we end today's show, we have a couple more minutes here, but I'm going to share with you some of the insights from this Bible Reader's Companion regarding the next couple chapters that we're going to read. Here in Genesis 12, God makes Abraham, Abram unconditional promises, telling him, I will do. These promises, soon confirmed by legal covenant, define the unique relationship with God to be enjoyed by Abram and his offspring. In a first great act of faith, Abram leaves his homeland to travel to the unknown land. Though a man of faith, Abram is far more far from perfect. He moves to Egypt without divine direction, and there fear leads him to lie about his relationship with his half-sister slash wife, God yet protects Abram, and he and his own are sent from Egypt back to Canaan. Abram, whose name God later changed to Abraham, was born in one of the fabled cities in the ancient world, Ur. Ur. In Abram's day, 4,100 years ago, Ur was the center of a rich Sumerian culture, a city lying along the Euphrates that boasted monumental architecture, vast wealth, comfortable homes, music, and art. There, Abram worshipped other gods as we see in Joshua 24.2. But when God spoke to him, Abram left his civilization, traveled to Canaan, and there lived a nomadic life in tents for nearly a hundred years. Abram exchanged the faded glory of this world for a personal relationship with God and won undying fame. Again, he, was, he went to that true worship. There's a difference between worshiping God in our own image and worshiping God through his image, worshiping God in truth and in spirit, and worshiping God according, according to our natural carnal desire. Abram exchanged the faded glory of this world for a personal relationship with God and won undying fame. Today, Abram is revered by adherents of all three world religions, great world religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. The Old Testament recognizes him as father of God's chosen people, the Jews, and the New Testament honors him as the spiritual ancestor of all who walk in the footstep of faith that our father Abraham had, Romans chapter 4, verse 12. What is the importance of Abraham to us today? First, we cannot begin to understand the Old Testament until we see it is the outworking of God's promises that God gave to this towering figure. Second, as we meditate on stories of Abraham's life, we find many principles we can apply today to enrich our personal relationship with the Lord. So Abraham listens to God. He wanders out. He leaves this land where he was worshipping other gods to go into the land where God's promising to bless him and his descendants. That's the story, where we're up to. And again, I, instead of detailing Genesis chapters about 15 to Exodus 2, 
I urge you to read them. I urge you to read them and begin to take your own notes and truly come to understand how this promise, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, these promises upon Abraham, how they begin to manifest. What is God doing in the beginning of our Bible? What is the story of the Genesis creation? As we begin to understand these things, we will truly come into more and more clarity regarding the things of God. If I may say this, happening here at Blue Point Bible Church, March 20th through the 22nd, that's about 10 days from now, we have our second annual Bible conference. Last year we were calling it the Power of Preterism Conference. This year we're kind of whispering the Power of Preterism Conference while recognizing that this is a Bible conference dealing not only with eschatology but also with protology, also with the middle of our Bible, with the Messianic promises and all that God was detailing to Israel through the prophets. So what we're going to do this year is we're going to have speakers Friday night starting at 7 o'clock from 7 to 9.45. We'll have time for question and answer and so forth. I invite everybody to come out. This is a free event. Also on Saturday. We're going to have Saturday morning from 11 a.m. to about 3 in the afternoon. We're going to have some speakers and a light lunch. And again, we'll offer time for question and answer. I know we have so many people coming. Unfortunately, today, Cliff Payne had contacted me and told me he will not be speaking at our, on our Friday night. He will not be able to make it to the conference. You know, here in New York, we've been getting hit with quite the winter. So Cliff Payne had to uh, opt out of coming just to deal with some of the things upstate New York with his home and the winter and everything else. Please pray for him and his family as well. I know his wife is pregnant, and uh, pray blessings upon blessings in his life. So, again, March 20th, and then at 7 o'clock on March 21st, I will be sitting down with another pastor, Pastor Robert Iannicelli of Faith on Fire Ministries here in Long Island, Hicksville, Long Island to be exact. And we will be sitting down and going through four major components of our Bible. We will be going through the Genesis creation, as I've been expounding upon for the past three or four weeks, not only on the show, but also in my sermons at Blue Point Bible Church. And then we're going to be dealing with the Messianic, um, I'm sorry, we're going to be dealing with the Law and the Prophets. Pretty much after you get the creation, you know, God's creating something, he instills a law and the prophets that we read in our Old Testament. And who are they talking to? What, what is happening? What are they promising? What are they talking about? That is something that is going to be drawn out in the discussion I have with Pastor Arian Nacelli. So then we're going to get into the Messianic ministry. Okay, so what was the purpose of Jesus? If we have the Genesis creation, we have the law and the prophets, what was the purpose of Jesus coming? And then finally, we're going to talk about what was the purpose of the end? What did Jesus prophesy that the end, the coming of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment was going to be about? What was that about and what does that apply to us today? I believe there's going to be a blessed conversation with Pastor Robert Iannicelli, and I believe that many things will be clarified in regards to the understanding of, of the full corpus of Scripture. You know, when you pick up your Bible and you hold it in your hand, what does this book say? And then, following that, on Sunday morning, I will have uh, the privilege, again, of speaking about uh, preaching at Blue Point Bible Church. I love the privilege I constantly have. And I'll be going through Exodus chapter 3 to Exodus 14. I know Derek Lambert has a lot to say about the Exodus as well, so you can look forward to that. He's going to be one of our speakers on Saturday morning. Also joining me on a live broadcast of Bible Beacon broadcast happening that Sunday um, at the Blue Point Bible Church. We'll be doing it in front of an audience, but also for you that are tuned in and listening. So, a lot of exciting stuff happening. I continue to exhort my listeners to fall in love with the Word of God. Fall in love with what Scripture says as Scripture. Spend at least 25 minutes a day just absorbing the truth of Scripture. Again, if you're following our list, and I can get that list to you, if you want to email me at ChristianityGoneWild at Yahoo.com and ask me for basic information, I will get all that information to you. If any questions about the readings, I would love to uh, help you with that as well. If you're following along with us, sometimes you're going to be reading, you know, it might require about an hour-long reading. For example, this week, Genesis chapter 10 to Exodus chapter 2. You know, that's not a Genesis chapter 1 through 2 reading there. This is a pretty lengthy, you know, about 40 chapters of Scripture within a week time frame. 
So again, you could sit down 25 minutes a day, and I believe that by the end of the week, you would be able to get through that reading very easily. Um, so we're going to have some very lengthy reads, but we are going to fall in love with Scripture as Scripture is relayed. Amen? Please join me in prayer and praise as we end our show today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege, Lord, to speak truth into the airwaves, Lord. I thank you for the the amazing truth you have given us through Scripture, Lord, that we can continue to be exhorted and find application in our lives. Lord, I pray for the body of Christ, that we continue to be compelled to find context, Lord, to find that anything without context is just a text with a con, Lord, and we, we do not want that. We want to glorify you, praise you in spirit and in truth as you require, Lord. Thank you for your spirit that gives us the diligence to search your word, and thank you for your word that relays your truth to us. We offer up this show, Lord, in our lives, in worship to you. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. Tune in on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. I look forward to having more and more opportunity of clarifying the biblical story. Go in peace. God bless you. Covenant Creation Ministry.